Hello, and welcome to Home Age Conversations, a podcast about none other than the residents. And I am Rabbit, and did you know that there was once a bank robber who was nicknamed Mr. Nasty because he used to swear a lot during his robberies? And I'm Mew, and did you know that there was once a uh, criminal named the Piggyback Bandit who has been banned from five states for uh, getting piggyback rides from several high school athletes. And I'm Mole. Did you know that Carl Panzeram, perhaps the outlaw to end all outlaws, under 12 separate aliases, committed 12 murders, more than 100 acts of sodomy, and thousands of robberies and arsons, and kept a journal journal detailing each of these acts, giving sources where his claims could be checked uh, for truth. And it was found that the only notable inaccuracy in this journal was in regards to the value of goods stolen from one of William Taft's houses. I'm Kat, and uh, in my hometown, a kid murdered his dad with a sword. So if it wasn't clear already, we are talking about River of Crime today. That's right, we're a podcast talking about a podcast. Now that's novel. So, River of Crime was a... a podcast <laughs> released in 2006. It was character driven and it was about five episodes total. And all these episodes were called crime casts based on the, based on the time honored concept of true crime. It was styled as a 1940s radio drama, which is complete with some of the musical, which was very, uh, it's brassy to say the least. A lot of horns. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I love horn sections. I really do. The reflections of its unseen narrator as he discloses a lifelong obsession with wickedness and vice. And he doesn't solve these crimes. He collects them. Like like baseball cards. Well, just like baseball cards with Ted Williams on them. Yeah. <laughs> just like baseball cards. Toe to tip. This one's a baseball card collector. So... Each episode sort of plays out on a couple different levels, but all following a similar form. So there's a narrator recounting his story in the present um, with some actors and sound effects mixed in to recreate the story. A historical incident, like the discovery in 1932 of an alligator in the New York City sewers, that provides a thematic base. And then there's also the music, which is honestly unmistakably residential um but still harkens back to the dark jazz of film noir with a greek chorus commenting on the goings-on i love a good greek chorus too really this one just kind of like it's all the spots all the spots so uh yeah when this uh project uh came out in 2006 um, podcasts were still a uh, pretty new concept at the time, um, and basically uh, the residents, um, the f- technology lovers and forward thinkers that they were, decided to sort of hop onto this. But they uh, they also wanted to look back on the past um, and sort of intertwine this at the time futuristic technology of podcasts with the sort of old timey radio format because. At the time, and I guess still today, podcasts are just people having conversations. So the incorporation of the past and the present here was enabled, believe it or not, by Warner Brothers. So everybody knows, or everybody should know, I mean, come on, what are they teaching in schools these days? Am I right? Um, <laughs> that the name of the group, the residents, was given to them because it was on a letter sent back to them, or on a package sent back to them from Warner Brothers, addressed simply to the residents. So fast forward a bit into the 90s. A guy named Michael Nash runs a digital arts company called Inscape and was instrumental in getting Bad Day out into the world. In 2005, he was named head of Warner Brothers and their new... He was named the head of Warner Brothers' new digital music division called Cordless. So being a friend and fan, he brought the residents on board. (laughs) Irony be damned. Giving them a long overdue Warner Brothers contract to do whatever they wanted in terms of digital music, which meant that this release came with a lot of, in retrospect, and maybe even at the time, 
ridiculous gimmicks. So, recordings were available exclusively at Virgin Megastore locations, Cordless.com, and at New York City's Museum of Modern Art. Episodes were available through a limited edition digital subscription locked by the per- um, unlocked by the purchase of a unique package of blank CD-ROM discs. Um, uh, unlocked by the purchase of a unique package of CDs with a code inside. And so, using that unique code, you were then supposed to go to the River of Crime website and download that week's episode. Each episode came with, you know, quirky extras such as ringtones, wallpapers, extra musical material from the ep- episodes, um, AIM messenger icons, <laughs> um, <laughs> scripts, and alternate art. And then there was also the River of Crime online community art project held by the residents and the Museum of Modern Art in New York, <clears throat> where between August 15th and September 15th of 2006, anyone could download an audio excerpt from the first episode and submit a video with their soundtrack. And the residents, in collaboration with the MoMA, cura- uh, in collaboration with MoMA curator Barbara London, judged submissions and posted 11, um, uh, posted the 11 winners on YouTube.com. And uh, the reason why, by the way, you you uh, purchased blank CDR discs is because the idea was because um, downloading music was still kind of new. Um, you're supposed to buy the blank discs, and then when all the episodes came out, you could download them and burn them onto your, your discs. So uh, you would have a traditional CD album still. So yeah, um, so they were kind of. I love of that. Hel- it's so funny. They, they were kind of helping with the whole transition from CDs to digital, but uh, in one of the most unorthodox ways they could have ever done it. Very roundabout. Interesting. Yeah, for some reason I can't understand why this wasn't a technique they used with other releases. Maybe I just don't get it. I think it's just because of the technology um, at the... It was just a very specific point in technology where, like, you can burn your own discs. Um, I don't know. Uh, But it actually almost calls back to, in a way, the... uh, Mixtapes of yore. I would say it almost calls back to uh, God and Three Persons, which was sort of the first mm. album they were uh, able to put out on CD. And um, it was made to be on CD. And it was basically structured on CD. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and um, it's interesting because God and Three Persons and River of Crime have uh, a lot of similarities. Spoken word, storytelling... They're both overall. fantastic. They're both yeah. really good, yeah. Overall story, yeah. So, one of the one of the most uh, ambitious projects, it was meant to run for 20 episodes. Now, think about it. Five already takes up quite a sizable amount of space. Think four times that amount. And each episode featured two, well, each episode that we got, at least, featured two parallel stories that reflected each other. Even when the connection wasn't always clear to the listeners, including us, it was very clear to the residents, and that's really all that matters. Um, the complicated and convoluted nature of the release did indeed call back to God and Three Persons in that way. Um, and in addition to God and Three Persons being formatted for CD and yet also being released on a um, 2LP set, there was also a mini CD um, and a couple tapes with extra material on them that were also released in a potato chips sort of format, you know, with an instrumental um, version of the album also being released. So the two are really weirdly comparable, and honestly, who's to say that if the police were aware of what Mr. X was doing, they wouldn't have locked them up. Well, they wouldn't have locked him up, you know, who can never be sure? Um, But this sort of storytelling style would appear quite a few times even after River of Crime, um, in, in like in terms of the style of narration and instrumentation, uh, it shows up again in Tweedles and Bunny Boy, sort of talking light intruders, and I mean, in a way, sort of in every residence project after God and Three Persons, um, with varying levels of prominence. Yeah, I, I would say though that, um, in terms of like 
the way uh, I guess the the style of project I feel like um, River of Crime is very much a sort of direct continuation of what they're doing uh, with God in Three Persons whereas like um, the 90s which you know followed God in Three Persons really went off in its own direction River of Crime is sort of returning back to that sort of God in Three Persons form um, which yeah. then continued with the uh, Tweedles and the other albums. Yeah, I think it goes to show that even if it, even though it's a warp deconstruction and reconstruction of radio dramas as we know them, the residents recognize that at the heart of all of this, storytelling has always been with us and will never go away, even as technology evolves. I like how the uh, the residents made a uh, true crime podcast before it was cool to do so because now like true crime is like the most popular podcast genre ever yeah they really are ahead of the curve even when they don't don't know it so with that and all our stolen wigs how about we move into the first track the kid who collected crimes Our lives are constantly surrounded by unseen streams. Numerous invisible rivers, comprised of albums, shows, records, tours, all that we detest and desire. While I am not a resident, the residents have stalked me from an early age. At this point, I can only see my life as an unending collision with obscurity. Leaving us but with one conclusion. We are fans of The Residents. So, after you hear the very iconic and eventually annoying uh, intro, you then get a nice little peek and welcoming into the nice story that you've got, which is the narrator's early obsession with crimes. And it even goes as far, eventually, and to add an actual peek into that early year of obsession, I guess. And it's a, it's based around none other than the electric chair. Ooh. So, yeah, about the intro, real quick. When I was first listening to River of Crime, I was like, ooh, okay, here's the intro, oh, we're really moving into this, and I feel like it would work really well if they just used it once, but because mm-hmm. the episodes were being released on like a, eh, bi- uh, every bi-weekly. couple of, yeah, on a bi-weekly basis. Or at least it's supposed to be. <clears throat> uh, when you put that on a, like, on a compiled version it gets very repetitive because the episodes are only about 15 minutes long but i digress um the story in this album in this on this track is absolutely hog wild um because the narrator starts with this really kind of juvenile obsession with the electric chair i mean every kid's got something that they're into you know so for some people it's dragons for some people it's warrior cats um for some people it's bugs you know, he starts out fo- over, like so focused on the electric chair, and then this sets the tone for sort of how every subsequent obsession is going to lead him down the river of crime, so to speak, um, because through his obsession with the electric chair, he becomes obsessed with people who have been executed in the electric chair. And the descent seems pretty logical from there, um, and... He's great, like, he must have been in, like, the first grade or something, but he's allowed to give a class presentation on the history of the electric chair, and the class is treated to a live execution, like, over the radio, which is, seems insane to me. Well, and I think it's important to note also that his whole thing with the electric chair didn't, if I recall correctly, it originated all with him being obsessed with the idea that Thomas Edison, like, friggin'... (laughs) killed an elephant 
Just yeah. Which is, which is, by the way, how the uh, the episode starts. Um, yeah, you get to hear an elephant die. Well, you, you, yeah. uh, well, it, it, oh, he admits it was a fake. It, just the, the residents are very uh, obsessed with recreating elephant deaths in their songs. Hmm. Maybe, maybe they've got some unresolved issues. I feel like elephants. they did that. I feel like they did that only like two years ago. Train versus elephant. What's the thing with Julius and Ethel Rosenberg? I totally forgot why they're important. They are executed in the 50s, 1953, I imagine, I think, uh, because they are thought to be Russian spies, you know, because they're in the Cold War when everyone's like, oh my god, the Russians! Wait, the that's also now. But anyway, <laughs> um... I'm not gonna get into like the specifics of the case because like with the information we got now, it's like were they guilty, were they not guilty, who knows? But point is at the time it was a very controversial non controversial it was a very important event in American history in which these two Americans were executed for espionage. The only American to be And what why it's important to this is because our kid who collected crimes just uses this as one more thing to further his obsession. And it also places um, the episode, and I guess the narrator, in, in his own sort of space chronologically. We know where this dude's at. Um, yeah, he brings up a lot of uh, sort of unrelated crimes um, in this first episode that just sort of establish his, his knowledge and uh, the depth of his uh, criminal knowledge. Yeah, because he says it, and maybe we can put a clip of it here, but he says his obsession with the electric chair eventually led into a general obsession with criminality in all forms. And so Just he gives some... Just because of the way, like, criminality... Like, he becomes fascinated with the way a criminal's mind works. Like, he mentions the case of uh, a man in Japan named Sadamachi Hirasawa who allegedly walked into a bank and poisoned a bunch of people, or another man named George McKay, who, uh, in, according to his account, the narrator's account, that is, when he was being led to the electric, or Jesus, when he was being uh, led to the gallows, he was allowed to see his infant, at which point he fed the infant a poisoned bread and killed it. And, that, and then... Uh... We hear a bit about the narrator's personal life, where his grandmother comes home from church and she talks about the sermon. His meemaw. His, oh, sorry, yeah, his meemaw. Um, the narrator's staying with his meemaw and she talks about the sermon and the residents incorporate a little audio clip of the sermon itself or their recreation of it, you know. Uh, and it's one of the most intense sounding things they've probably ever put out. Um, a lot of the like audio effects in uh, this series, but especially prominent in this first episode, uh, are really interesting. They have that very uh, sort of um, filter on them, as if you're listening to them from like a radio, it's, um, it's an old-timey radio. Very kind of grainy and distorted. I really like it. Yeah, it's very, very pleasant. And then we learn through the sermon that uh, the preachers talking about Tony Joe Henry and uh, her whole execution and this leads to uh, the narrator's Mima talking about how she knew Tony Joe and the narrator's like what for real and it turns out Tony Joe's aunt is their neighbor so of course our narrator who could not be more than 10 years old decides in an instant that he has to go over there and despite his claims in the intro does commit a crime he breaks into her house <laughs> and climbs through a window and looks in you know and starts digging through tony a room full of tony joe's stuff and then we hear the the voice effect used again when um florine farmers yeah right um tony joe's aunt calls out to the kid and tells him to get out because she knows someone's there and so he grabs the last thing he can as he jumps out a nearby window and it turns out to be Tony Joe Henry's wedding photo. 
and to him, you know, being obsessed with criminals, like having this direct connection and having a memento this important from the criminal's life. Um, he says it explicitly. This was the best day of my life. So, um, yeah, we see the beginning of what will become a theme, you know. It seems like from a, an older perspective, like just a needlessly cruel... Like, if he wasn't a kid, it'd be a needlessly cruel thing to do. Um, to just break into this obviously heartbroken woman's house and just steal this stuff, but he doesn't care because it's not really that close to him and, you know, awesome It's just one picture. picture. Just a picture. Um, He's like a, a tourist, almost. Takes takes it, puts it in his, his you know, collections and he moves on. He does. He's unaffected. So he doesn't care. He's strictly concerned with the crime itself and not the repercussions emotionally of who the crime leaves behind. Yeah, it seems that he doesn't realize that criminality, you know, isn't just something that's cool and epic. You know, this is something that has serious emotional repercussions for people. Uh, interestingly enough, Tony Joe Henry's aunt lived in Shreveport, Louisiana. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I don't really know anybody else who's, like, from Shreveport, Louisiana, so I don't understand why you think the fact is interesting to share. Um, it's interesting because the residents, uh, apparently, um, have said that this, uh, is not autobiographical in any way, but, hmm. 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 Any of the residents have some photographs they want to share? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you know the statute of limitations might be up on stealing that picture. Um, if I'd like to see the picture. if anyone did steal a picture, I don't know if any resident out there. I don't know. I'm not saying that they did, but Numerous invisible rivers comprised of albums, shows, records, tours, all that we detest and desire. Well, I am not a resident. <clears throat> well, I am not a resident. The residents have stalked me from an early age. At this point, I can only see my life as an unending collision with obscurity, leaving us but with one conclusion. We are fans of the residents. Welcome to the world of Gator Hater. So, this one, there's something about this one that's just so sad to me. But, uh, so it starts out, you know, you have the narrator, and he gets a call from a friend of his saying that there is a alligator, which I can't imagine is a, uh, completely unheard of thing happening in Louisiana. Hold on, hold on. I just need to take us back a little bit because can we have a moment to honor the very realistic New York <laughs> accent uh, used at the beginning of this track where some kids are looking down a man or shoveling snow into a manhole. Yeah, so the track opens up and we hear some just like chef kiss perfect New York accents. Like, <laughs> I'm from the area. I'm from the area, and I swear that not even natives sound anything like that. <laughs> but anyway, so you have these guys. They're uh, shoving snow. To, uh, to, they just start throwing it into the gutter. You know? And uh, they think to themselves, they'd like, Hey, is it? They, uh, I'm not doing that. So they're shoving the snow into a gutter because they don't feel like doing it. They don't feel like, you know, non-half-assing the job. And they find an alligator in, in the sewer. And, uh... They start oh, going Jurassic Park on it. Like, kill, it. kill her! Kill her! And that, that the narrator finds out about that, and he's like... What? 
what? And it, it raises the question as to who's flushing baby alligators down the toilet, you know? So the kid gets a phone call, the kid being the narrator as a child, gets a phone call from his friend saying that there is an alligator in a local, by, I think it's a pond by a golf course, if I recall correctly. Yes. And he's like, hell yeah, man, that's totally what's I, what I'm about. And he's like, hey, mom, I'm going to go look at an alligator. And his mom is like, no, no, absolutely not. You are not and his mom like freaks out and she's like absolutely not go upstairs go to your room like no 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 grounded and the kid's for like, six months for... because like what if it was yeah. yes uh he doesn't get grounded he yet, doesn't get grounded yet. Just... No, no, no. oh yeah he's like yeah. Uh, he's like i damn and so he goes up to his room and he sneaks out the door or window i should say as any young kid would and he goes to the uh the alligator at which point He's, you know, everyone's gawking at this gator, and uh, he looks up and he sees his mom. Price is right losing Warren's play Hi, on mom. a celestial uh, band. So, the mom, like, she, she bugs. She's like, how dare you? Like, she's freaking out, and like, she's like screaming and crying, and she's like, you're grounded. Grounded until you're dead. Basically, yeah, you're grounded, no, nothing, nothing, nothing. Like, you're, that's it. Like, I'm done with it. No, 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 no. No. And so then he's like, you know, he's a little kid. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then his mom calms down and she explains why she's so upset. And she explains that when she was in school, she had a best friend. And her best friend in the whole world, like they, they did everything together and like they were inseparable. But then her friend's mother got sick, so she returned home to Texas. And uh, the plan was... You know, to help her mother and then eventually come back. Unfortunately, the mother's illness proved fatal and her mother ends up dying. So she decides to work for a while to save up money and then come back to school. Over uh, the mother's spring break, she decides she's going to visit her friend. And so they're, they're, you know, writing letters back and forth to plan this whole shebang out. And then all of a sudden, she stops oh. hearing from her. And she's like, well, I'm still gonna go. Like, this is weird Like that she stopped talking, but I'm still going to go. So she goes, and the, the bus drops her in front of the bar that her friend works at. Now, her friend had written her a letter detailing that her boss was weird, that her boss had alligators in the back of the bar, like in this pit that was a tourist attraction at this point, that he fed live animals to it, like terrible things, and that her boss touched her a lot, that she was uncomfortable, and that he just gave her the creeps. So when she gets there, she finds, you know, the mother, I mean, gets there, she finds, like, caution tape all over the place, and she's like, "What? what's going on here? And a policeman explains that uh, they went to arrest her boss, whose name is Joe Ball, and he just freaking shot himself, and they found bodies in the, in the pond, the alligators, and... It's never explicitly said what happens to her friend, but kind of put can... two and two together. It is said in, in the episode that everybody knew how he kept the alligators fed, so, you know. You know, as it were. And this was a real place, too. Um, mm -hmm. And this was a real, well, kind of crime. It's In real life, it's also kind of unclear regarding the alligators. Um... And the the real people who uh, got disappeared by uh, Joe Ball. Yeah, there were two known victims, and likely upwards of twenty or so. Yes, their names. The two in a uh, an effort to just you know preserve the memories and respect the victims. The known victims' actual names are Hazel Brown and Minnie Gotthart, better known as Big Minnie. So may they find peace. Um, this one is, I th it really signals sort of the direction that all of these are going in, because, you know, you have, like, really, the crime itself 
is a little- it's grotesque, but I wouldn't say it's the most fascinating crime, um, or the most complex, but what is, I think, the most detailed section is the sort of friendship the narrator's mother and her friend had, and the kind of loss his mother experienced. And her terrible, terrible grief that she's consumed by even all these years later. Her fear yeah. of losing her son to the same, uh, kind of situation. But the narrator doesn't realize this yet. I guess probably because he's still, like, a young kid. Um, but that sort of unknowing approach to the way crime affects people personally pretty much goes on until the last episode in the series. Um, I, I, yeah, this is really the first one where the sort of... Um, formula i guess of two specific parallel crimes overlapping each other um happens because the first one it's sort of a crime and then another crime um this is the first one where it sort of starts really overlapping with the narrator's life almost um also i like this one musically mm. it has a kind of like weird twinkle twinkle little star like melody to it going throughout the entire thing. I don't know if that's intentional or not. are constantly surrounded by unseen streams. Numerous invisible rivers, compromised albums, shows, records, tours, all that we detest and desire. Well, I am not a resident. The residents have stocked at the early age. At this point, I can only see my life as an unending collision with obscurity. Um, uh, whose idea was it to, uh, to do the opening every single time we start off a discussion of another episode? I, I don't I know. I to say this, but I'm like 98.65% sure that it was you. Like, I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to like, you know, as the kids say drag you or anything, but like, I'm like pretty sure it was you. You nice. might have. All right. Um, well, then. Misdelivered mummy. Misdelivered mummy. Want to make sure we've all got it over our system. So it starts off after your very catchy intro with a speech from a young lad. And then it goes into the story of the narrator around his teen years and how their him Look! Uh, their mother left and they receive a package. And his younger sister, whose birthday is imminent, thinks, Oh, for me. And then she opens it, and it turns out to be a diary. Narrator looks at it and he thinks, This is not yours. And brings it to his school's French teacher, even though he is not in any of her classes. And she happens to live quite close to him. Um, he takes it to the French teacher because it's all in French. Uh, well, there, it comes with a letter in French from some uh, fancy place that he doesn't know where it's from, but it looks fancy and official, so he wants to know what the letter says. He goes to his French teacher who's blasting uh, this weird French pop music, which sounds really cool when it's like mixed in to the uh, to the background track but that 
I digress. Um, and she learns it's from the French Foreign Legion. Um, and it's incredibly fancy, but it's, it's to a certain Chubby Miller, who also happens to live in this town in Louisiana. Um, so sort of like visitor. an all-star city right here for crime. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. It's like Twin Peaks. This is like, this is like Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> um, the interesting thing is that um, in the diary, it's from this sort of pilot guy who... Uh, gets stranded in the desert and um, from the letter we find that his body ended up being mummified in the desert after he crash landed and died um, so it's interesting because um, he mentions this, this trial and how he was completely innocent in his diary which is kind of weird to just mention but he's writing uh, to his true love um, it's very kind of beautiful almost and romantic and there's this really nice romantic like nostalgic almost background track to it which is amazing yeah especially um, that one part where I he's talking it. about um the like oppression of the heat or whatever and there's that delightful guitar in the background <laughs> that is what romance sounds like you cannot like a good guitar i know it to be fact anyway he goes to uh to uh, Chubby Miller's house, um, gives her the diary, um, but him being sort of a uh, crime maniac, um, he stars, sort of snoops around and sees this picture um, she has, which is her in front of a plane, because uh, she was a pilot too, but it's cut in half, it's like ripped in half, and only she's in the picture, whoever else was in the picture has been removed. And she sees it, and she becomes immediately a lot more aggravated, throws the diary into a fire, and then aggressively shoes off the narrator. She talks about how, quote, he killed the only man I ever loved or something like that. Yes. I don't know why I said quote there, because that is not an exact quote. <sighs> Do we want to talk about the real the his the history about this specific crime because yeah the because the the track itself is kind of anticlimactic it she just sort of throws it into the fire and he it, goes away. it's 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 very uh sort of subtle about the the truth of the crime or i guess presenting the crime from a more objective case it presents it as one would just receiving this diary and like listening to to the other humans involved and but we're of never course, presented it's much more a, interesting inside. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the narrator gets that information that he reads in the diary, and then Chubby Miller saying that uh, this guy Lancaster was his name. This pilot killed the only man she ever loved, and so that's really all you get as as a listener, and all the narrator gets, and he just kind of moves on. What really happens if you do some background research is that you know. Uh, Chubby Miller and this Lancaster fellow were both pilots, and they they did all sorts of piloty things together. And then they settled down in Florida. Uh, Lancaster briefly goes to Mexico to work on some project, and in the meantime, Chubby Miller gets assistance from an American writer named Hayden Clark to write her autobiography. While they're doing that, they kind of fall in love, and Chubby Miller writes a letter to Lancaster in Mexico saying that she's going to break it off with him in favor of her relationship with uh, Mr. Clark. So, at this point, Lancaster returns immediately home, and not too long after that, Hayden Clark is found murdered by gunshot. Despite the fact that the gun that was used in the murder is, was Lancaster's, and the fact that Lancaster admitted to forging multiple suicide notes found at the scene, he is acquitted. What's interesting to note here, as far as the differences between this case in actuality and, and what we hear Chubby Miller saying, is that she actually testified in his favor at the trial. I don't know why. But she did. That is and a people, real mystery. It is a real mystery. And people also think that uh, it was also a case that the, his Lancaster's celebrity also interfered with the ruling. Because, you know, people in the jury, people who were witnessing the trial, who came to watch the trial, were just like, spent a lot of the time just cheering for Lancaster because he was a celebrity. Nobody wants to see the celebrity. Well... Some people don't want to see their favorite celebrities go to jail. 
Our lives are constantly surrounded by unseen uh, streams. Numerous invisible rivers <laughs> comprise of albums, shows, tours, all that we detest and desire. Well, I'm not a resident. The residents of Stockton from an early at this point, I can only see my life as an unbearable recollection of obscurity. The young woman took out the key and opened the door trembling. After some moments, she began to perceive that the floor was covered over with clotted blood, on which lay the bodies of several dead women arranged against the walls. These were the wives that Bluebeard had married and murdered, one after another. Terrified, the young woman thought she would have died for fear, and the key that she pulled out of the lock fell from her hand. The beards. So this episode starts off um, with um, our narrator, who's like gotta be in his like teenage, early twenties, maybe. He's a teen, bro. Um, oh man, we he's got babysitting. teens out here. <laughs> yeah. Backwards baseball cap and everything. Skateboard, tank top. Um, but uh, he's babysitting this kid. Um, this little girl. Um, on Christmas and, Eve. Yeah, on Christmas Eve. Um, and for some reason, the, the bedtime story he chose for her was a story called Bluebeard. Um, it is not for kids. Is uh, Yeah, it's very uh, problematic. I wouldn't even say it's problematic. It's just very graphic and disturbing and horrific. So uh, the kid goes to bed, and our narrator goes and just reads his little newspaper um, that's just around the house he's in. And it's about this, uh, this guy who just got arrested, uh, known as the Beast of Jersey. So the, it sort of goes into a little dra- drama recreation of his arrest with these weirdly, like, comic relief British accent cops. That distract um, you from the kind of story <laughs> that is about to get told in the rest of the episode. They're very goofy uh, almost. They they have these over-the-top British accents. They're talking about this guy just ran a red light. They're trying to call into like the commander guy or whatever. Um, but he's like, he doesn't care. <laughs> uh, and they have to like they chase him into like what is it like a tomato field? Yes. Um, so they finally catch him because his car gets stuck, and he is wearing a. Uh... It looks like if Michael Myers was like made into a wax figure. Not Michael Myers, the actor, the killer from the movie. Um, like they, he took they took his mask and like melted it a bit, and it was like, let's make this mask even more upsetting to look at. And then he's also wearing this, like, trench coat with, like, spikes all over it. Actual nails. Nails, nails, you're right. And, uh, they're like, um, hey, buddy, uh, what you doing dressed like this? Going to an orgy. And he says, I'm going to an orgy, duh. And, you know, I think if your excuse for what you're doing is going to an orgy, and that's supposed to be better than what you're actually doing you you're already you you're already done so my friend it's, a, it's such a, like a weird situation to think of like these cops they go to this guy he's dressed in like <laughs> full full just like this halloween costume-esque stuff and he just tells them i'm just going to an orgy Duh. I, I would like to say that the mask looks uh like Leatherface uh mixed with one of the the the, the guy from talking light the the uh, lonely teenager guy um, our narrator, 
is researching more of this Edward Pysnell, whatever, Beast of Jersey guy, and learns about his sort of role model, um, a guy with a French name who I cannot pronounce. Again. Gil de Rays. It's pronounced Gil de High, I think. So, uh, he was, uh, he was a guy from, uh, history, um, Buddy of Joan of Arc. He worked with yeah, Joan of Arc. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, uh, also, um, murdered and, uh, sexually Torch. assaulted and tortured and t horrible other things to many, many children. Um, Sacrifices, occult garbage, you know. Yeah, oh, you know, you're, you're regular. You know? This is actually, I think, the episode where it starts to resemble more of what a true crime podcast is nowadays. Um, mm -hmm. For, like, the middle of it. Because he gets into a little bit about what that guy was up to. And then, unfortunately, as with all residents' things, it, within this context, with everything within River of Crime, it has to get drawn back into the present somehow. And, oh! Oh my so god, my heart was in my throat. Oh, Christ alive. If I can speed us through this real quick, because I'm impatient yeah, to get to the horror. <laughs> um, the kid, this dude is babysitting, you know, he, he puts her to bed and then she keeps needing to get up because children have needs or something. And this goes on back also and forth. Probably cause, um, also probably because uh, she couldn't sleep because she was read Bluebeard to sleep but as a bedtime story but maybe yeah, maybe maybe not i mean come on <laughs> kids love dark scary stuff um so eventually you know it's building to a peak the narrator's getting really frustrated with this kid and i thought i was gonna throw up and die <laughs> um i was so scared for this little girl i didn't know what was going to happen to her i was like please god because we're alternating God, no. in between the narrator being really frustrated with this kid and reading about horrific crimes committed against children. Mm. And so it feels kind of logical as per where it's headed. And when it does hit that peak, it was unclear to me exactly what had happened. And then the kid's parents come home. And it turns out he just spanked her. But man, the residents play it off like he just stabbed that kid, chopped her up, and tossed her down the garbage disposal. I mm -hmm. mean, it's dark. Um, and obviously the kid's parents are furious with him for spanking their child, as they should be. And, and they accuse him. They say, like, you know, get out of here, you child molester. Which is where I personally thought it was go where it was going. That's, I... Again, like this, like it invoked this like visceral, skin-crawling, fear, disgust, apprehension. This entire episode, and part of that is his sort of response to all that, where he's sort of saying, you know, um, the police asked me a bunch of questions, but they couldn't pin anything on me because well, I didn't do it. Yeah, like to go back for a second after. Uh, the reason why the police question him is because shortly after this, the little girl goes missing. Yes, yes. And, and the way he seems, talks about it, yeah. yeah. It's, he talks about it very much like he did it. Um, and he says, he, he talks very much like he's guilty. He does it with that, all yeah. the subtlety as uh, O.J. Simpson uh, <laughs> did with his book. If I did it with if in the smallest print imaginable. Uh, because he's like, you can't convict me for anything because there's no body. And then as it turns out, the little girl just shows back up. She's fine. She's on a swing set, but she doesn't talk about what happened before. So honestly, with this episode, I was like, where, where do you even go from here? Because it seems like the next logical conclusion would be him describing his own crime, you know? Yeah. Um, but well, out of curiosity though do you guys think he had anything to do with her disappearance no. i don't think so i, I think don't think so i think, think, so I, think crime, I think yeah. there's His... i think he found something exhilarating about talking about it like he did it because he's yeah, exactly there's like something... he finally got to he got interrogated by the police which for someone who's like obsessed with crimes like being able to do that while also being, being innocent. completely innocent it's, it's got to be a, a rush for him. It's the closest he's gotten to being yeah. one of these people without being one of these people. It, it, it kind of gave him more like insight, like, 
Instead of just, they were arrested, he now gets to think, they were arrested, interrogated, questioned, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and I feel like the logical, happened. like the direction one would assume the residents were going in, um, it seems pretty obvious from here, but as it turns out with the next episode, and the final episode, they choose to do something a little bit more unconventional that I think reveals more themes in the uh, in the album as a whole. Uh, yeah, um, I agree. I feel like you don't really truly grasp what this theme is until this last episode. It's very akin to like the book The Catcher in the Rye. You don't really get it until the very last. Like he says the very last line, and then you're like, oh. So it's like you're going through all of this and you're hearing about all this crime. You assume the theme is just crime. And so you get this very last episode and, and find out, you know, what happens, what is happens. And you're like, oh. All right. <clears throat> hey, hey, okay, dude, just <laughs> we'll put it in in post, okay? Can we? Can we do that? Can we just not okay. do that? Can, I mean, yeah, we can this? just not do uh, that. He, yeah, Sparky can just edit it in. Sparky can edit it in? I ain't doing nothing. Here, have this. Our lives are constantly surrounded by unseen stories. Numerous invisible rivers comprised of albums, shows, all records, tours, all that we detested and desired. Stalked me from an early age. At this point, I can only see my life as an unending collision of obscurity. Leaving us but with one conclusion. We, we are fans, fans of the residents. So anyways, the termites from Formosa, uh, we hear a brief description of how Formosan termites behave, it seems very abrupt, and we hear the narrator compare criminals to termites saying they're the termites of society and they're getting termites out of the uh, narrator's uh, Meemaw's house and everybody's gathered up there because she, she passed and you know they're all meeting there for the to get together before the funeral and but they're gonna sell the house so the dude has to check for termites okay standard procedure and so we hear a brief strange unrelated story um, that the narrator's uncle tells where there's some shark like there's a shark in a tank the whole every single accent in this episode is ridiculous the uncle is from Australia and he sounds like he's from somewhere else, I don't know. <laughs> um, all of his southern well, no, relatives. It was like a very, very, very exaggerated Australian accent. Yeah. Like every other accent in this. Well, isn't series. wasn't wasn't uh, what's her face supposed to be from Australia as well? Chubby, yeah. Chubby. Oh, I is that what that accent was? Okay. I thought she was yes, like, from like yes. a Celtic country, and then we've got Same. the uncle who like. Sounds like number four from Kids Next Door. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm, so that's yeah, a, that's a reference. All of our <laughs> they're gonna love that. <laughs> oh. Um, so he's talk. Everybody's asking him to tell a platypus story. Um, so he talks about going to an aquarium to see a platypus and instead seeing a shark throw up an entire arm while he was at that aquarium to see a, a platypus. Um, and then. The narrator tells a story about finding, well, working um, in some kind of, like, some shipping-related thing, and there's a coffin being loaded up um, onto an airplane, and it gets knocked off, and inside is a dead Chinese guy, and then he splits open like a ripe watermelon, that is a direct quote, and tongues fall out, a bunch of shark tongues that he says look like eels which is absolutely disgusting, but then we're drawn back to reality as the guy who was underneath the house checking for termites, he is at the door and losing his mind. Um, I think this is also the same voice actor who does the uh, main dude from Voice of Midnight. Am I correct or incorrect? He is, and also he plays one of the New Yorker guys and the protagonist in, like, episode three or whatever, something like that. Well, you know, at, le at least he's, he, he seems like a very nice man. He's freaking out and tells the narrator that somebody's got to go check underneath the house because he saw something 
and he doesn't want to go back down there. So the narrator goes down there. You know, he's so brave. He's ready to, to face all the horrors of reality, and he goes underneath the house. And what does he find? What does he find? A skeleton. A skeleton. Okay. Um, Which and, is scary, because I didn't think they existed. I got some hey, news for you. There's skeletons yeah. inside you right now, bro. No, how many? <laughs> how many? At least one. No. Yes. That's not true. It's true. Possible. Oh, so God, I can feel them moving my fingers. <laughs> when he Did you know that your bones are wet? No. Stop. Ew. Uh, ew. Gross. <laughs> um, anyway. So he goes underneath the house and he finds a skeleton, and the effects on the vocals are so... Skeleton. Uh, they're skeleton, very, very, skeleton. very dramatic. And obviously our narrator is like, oh, my God, because it's a skeleton. How close can you get to crime other than finding... You know, a corpse, an entire human skeleton, but then he realizes that the skeleton is wearing a very familiar plaid sports coat and polka dot tie, which is the most residential outfit I've ever heard described. So, it kind of sounds like he found Randy under there. <laughs> oh, that's what happens to Randy. He goes okay. back. Double back. trouble spoilers. They take his skin mm -hmm. off, and that's what's in the ashes. Double trouble is actually just a whole entire movie based Wait. on River of Crime. Mole, so you're saying they take Randy's skin off, but they keep his clothes on? <laughs> yes. That's exactly what they do. It's what he would have wanted. Um, yeah, you're right. And so... The narrator realizes at this moment that this is his father's skeleton and it this like this is the the breaking point. This is the moment where all the themes of all the episodes come together. Because the narrator is talking about how he was he he tries to go on a little rant about how like a termite his father crawled underneath the house and lived underneath the, the floorboards and then that's sort of where the metaphor like the comparison ends because it, it it's not it's not fun anymore and it's not interesting in that same way he claims because you know it, it's the it, the autopsy reveals it to be suicide so he claims that his father is a criminal for what he did i think because yeah, and saying he's like a termite, not only because he like burrowed into the house, but because he's a criminal and criminals are termites, which... Man. You can tell he's not, his heart really isn't in it when he's trying to call his father a criminal in that sense. What he's really calling his father a criminal for is the sense of loss that he brought upon everyone, but especially the narrator. And when you look at the rest of the episodes, you realize that is the crime that all of these people have committed. You know, they've brought about loss in all sorts of different ways. Um, and, you know, I, I read this one review of The River of Crime that stated that it was not a river of crime that our narrator rides upon. It's a river of loss. And mm. I thought that was pretty poignant, especially because... At the end of this track, well, for one thing, the Greek chorus is incredible. Um, talking about what are we walking over, what will walk over us. Um, it that, that sets the tone for the focus on grief that comes within the last couple of minutes. Because the narrator is describing the sort of surroundings of the, of the corpse, which are some magazines and a plate of chicken bones. And he realizes that... His father left chicken bones um, he, on the he, plate, and he broke the wishbone. The wishbone. And he says that he wonders what his father wished for. Interestingly enough, this is not the only time wishbones show up in uh, Residence Media. They show up again in Bunny Boy because uh, Harvey leaves chicken bones inside of a book. You know, wait, you know where they also show up? Where? In a Randy video in my room, episode three. There you have it. Wait, let me let me just look that up real quick to make sure I'm right. The narrator's father is Randy. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, he's got this whole obsession with crime, but, you know, I, I agree with the review that he's really writing this river of loss, and I think it's really the idea of that effect of loss that he might 
it's both crime, but also the idea of what's being taken away. Because he only briefly goes over, like, you know, the case with the George McKay or the Japanese fellow. The cases he really delves in deep to or is deep into is what something where s- something terrible and substantial has been lost, and there are people around to talk about that loss and that grief, that tragedy. And he's yeah. just like drawn to tragedy and it, the fact that this last thing, like he sees his, the body, he makes the connection, and he just says, "Daddy," which is just so. It, like the reversion back to childhood kind of vocabulary and this like undoing it makes it's it very, very circular very circular yeah and it's the, the there's a sylvia plath quote where she says i desire the things which will destroy me in the end and i think that is very fitting for our narrator here i think that the part where he says daddy in that very distressed voice uh is such a powerful moment it's such a sort of breaking of his character where before he's a very kind of almost smug mm-hmm. about these crimes he's just like isn't this cool like this is so interesting but he's never sort of emotionally inv- he doesn't see them as losses himself he just sees them as cool criminal things and then when it finally happens to him his sort of smugness just disappears because uh, when he first sees the skeleton, he's, like, he's Ooh, fascinated. A skeleton. Yeah, he he's like, "There's a skeleton underneath. There's a corpse underneath my house. That's so cool." And then he realizes who it is. Yeah, okay. and he just completely breaks down. Yeah, his entire like, you know, quote unquote, ride down the river of crime has now been crushed. He realizes the true quality and character of the crime. So closing thoughts. Uh, closing thoughts. Uh, River of Crime, good album. Intro. I, I, eh, man, they were really going somewhere. I feel like with the burn your own CD thing. I wish they woulda. Um. Um. Well, I I think they're very talented. Um, River of Crime to me, very good. Um, I think it's very much overlooked. Yes, yeah, a hidden um, gem. Partly mm-hmm. because of the. I think the podcast element very much um, pushes people away because I remember when I uh, first listened to this, which was not that long ago, I first listened to it for this podcast, uh, which we planned to record like two years ago at this point now. But um, uh, and the reason why I put it off for so long was because the, uh, the CD that they put out um, now that it's over is called River of Crime, the first five episodes. And I thought there was more episodes than that. So I was like, well, I can't find the other episodes, not knowing that there are only five episodes. Which, to be fair, the five episodes that we have form a pretty good, like, story arc. And I don't even know where they would go Yeah. from there. Um, and it's a very good album, minus the rep- repetitive... Um, opening but, I, which is still i i like i like the oh no i, like I personally it, <laughs> don't mind the opening because it reminds me of other podcasts like uh, at this it, point it does. I can it reminds recite, me of recite like by heart the mcelroy brothers opening to my brother my brother and me like i think if i developed amnesia that would be like the one thing i remembered is that the mcelroy brothers are not experts and that their advice should never be followed etc 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 yeah, no, I, I I really like the the opening, but it is kind of repetitive, especially when you're uh, listening to yeah. it multiple times. Um, and I still think I, I like it though. If they did a vinyl release of River of Crime, which they should do, um, I would say they should definitely keep that opening in there. I would like to proudly announce. I know I bring her up a lot, but my my wonderful girlfriend is not a Residence fan, or at least not yet. Because I played her this album, uh, and she was like, like you know, after it was all said and done, like after, and I was like, well, what did you think? She's like, I really, really, really liked it, and I was like, yeah, buddy, we got her. She said her review, so I figure I'll put in her review as well since you've heard mine. Her review, she loved the storytelling aspect of it. She loved the way they mixed 
the narrator's voice as well as the uh you know you hear grandma's or mima's voice i'm sorry mima's voice the mom's voice chubby's voice all these different like the uncle's voice she she really enjoyed that like that method of storytelling yeah i played um i sent it to my friend grace and she said that was good like like good good so there's a um album by another artist um definitely not nine inch nails i think it was led zeppelin but anyways the album is called the downward spiral in in the story for that like if you look at it overall it's just like this character's his mind going down into a worse place and it's kind of this is you know it begins like oh yeah i'm i'm all cocky i can i i'm not, i'm above all this crime and all the way into uh oh no the crime is right in front of me Evil knows his name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind of like God in three persons. Yeah. Uh, shall I read you all a comment from a residence video? Yay! I love part. Danny of the Dead, three years ago, said, Well, this is certainly not you two. <laughs> Alright, that, that's about it from us. Um, Wowee. Now wasn't that a crime-tastic episode of your favorite true crime podcast, Home Age Conversations? Alright everyone, thank you for uh, listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Sorry for the delay. There was no episode last month because we lost this recording, so we had to re-record the entire episode. Um, that just took a while, so we will, however be releasing another episode this month hopefully <laughs> if we don't lose the recording again and it will be about an album which may be intruding on your subconscious if, uh, if you get what i'm you know saying here um not only will you hear us four hosts give our fantastic hot takes on the album but we will be sending our junior reporter, Sparky, out into the field to interview a certain Mr. Eric Drew Feldman about the album Intruders, his work on it, his work with the residents in general, and, I don't know, maybe his opinions on World War I or something. I don't know. Um, we'll just have to f find out next episode. So, uh, stay tuned. And thank you again for listening.